Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Brian Buckmeyer, a long crime host, ABC contributor, and defense attorney. Brian is on the ground in Minneapolis covering the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer accused of murder in the death of George Floyd. I called Brian up on Wednesday night to get an update on the first few days of the trial, which have seen opening arguments from the prosecution and defense, as well as testimony from witnesses. We spoke about the arguments on either side, where Brian thinks this trial is headed, and what it's like reporting on a murder trial during the coronavirus pandemic. Brian, thank you for joining me on this very busy week. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we're now halfway through the first week of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer charged in the death of George Floyd. You're on the ground in Minneapolis. Could you run me through what has happened in the first couple of days of the trial? All right, so even before the trial, Sunday night, the family of George Floyd had a vigil and prayer service at a local church like five minutes away from the court. Uh, there you heard words from Reverend Al Sharpton, Benjamin Crump, as well as afterwards that, like I said, it was a church. So prayer, song, and then words from civil rights um, activists in different variations of what they wanted to see. Monday morning, we saw before the opening statements, uh, the family taking a knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds, the symbolic gesture of what they perceived uh, to happen on that video. And I say perceived because in opening statements, we were all kind of taken aback that eight minutes and 46 seconds turned into nine minutes and 29 seconds as they argued. Then we saw opening statements and witness upon witness upon witness. What was the difference between that, the, the eight minute number and the nine minute number? So that was, that was the prosecution saying that it was really more than nine minutes that uh, Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd. Um, how did they arrive at that number? I, so we're all kind of still speculating because everyone's been saying eight minutes and 46 seconds, but even the yeah. defense agrees that it is nine minutes and 29 seconds. You didn't hear an objection there. That must've been something that when they took the totality of the video, because you got to remember, uh, and I, I can tell you from the experience of myself, when I'm a defense attorney and I have the paperwork, what the media sees when, when, when I do have media cases is but a pebble compared to everything that we have. So I think they have a better ability to evaluate the time and they came with a more truer time than what we've been seeing so far. So I think one of the most resonating aspects of this trial so far, having watched testimony from the witnesses, particularly the witnesses today, is how much remorse and guilt is being expressed by a lot of the people involved. Um, a number of the witnesses have broken down in tears watching the footage of, of Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck. And I find that is fairly striking when you contrast it with the more casual attitude that you see in the video from Chauvin. Um, when he's kneeling on the neck with his hand in his pocket as George Floyd begs for relief. What did you make of the feelings expressed by witnesses so far? So one thing, a lot of us have been thinking, and sorry to correct you, a lot of us thinking, and I thought it was, well, his hand was in his pocket, but he's actually wearing a black glove and it blends in with oh, wow. his pants. And so they even kind of like dissected it in court. And you can see when you really get close, you're like, okay, it looks like his hand's in his pocket because it's in the exact same position. His glove is just blending in very well with his pants, but it's gotcha. still in the same position as his pocket. Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you today, I was very fortunate enough to actually be in the courtroom as one of the pool attorneys. And it is thick with tension. It is thick with remorse because I think a lot of people, you heard from the person who called 911, or sorry, the person who believed it was a counterfeit $20 saying, if maybe I just didn't tell them to call 911, he would still be alive. 
I think that person is taking a lot of this on his shoulders. And I hope that he's hearing this in one way, shape or form and knows that this is not his fault. Um, you're hearing other bystanders, especially the, the off-duty firefighter or the MMA fighter saying, maybe I could have done something. And I would tell anyone, if you, if you see an officer arresting someone and you believe they're committing a crime, do not interrupt. That is very dangerous for you and also a crime in of itself. But there was remorse, there was people crying. I'm, when I was in court and McMillan, Charles McMillan was breaking down, I'm sitting there and I've got Rodney Floyd, George Floyd's youngest brother behind me tearing up. I have Keith Ellison four feet away from me with his head kind of just down, just being like, oh my gosh, this is difficult. And I've got the witness about 20 feet away from me. And I think it, at that point, everyone thought about someone they had lost or someone that they have seen lost. And I myself, like I, I, I started thinking about people that I've lost in my life or people that are struggling with health right now. And it was, it was emotional. Wow. And, you know, uh, one thing that has surprised me, I'm not sure if it surprised you, you've been in these courtrooms a lot, um, is how many of the witnesses have been children, uh, either preteens or teenagers? What are they saying about what they saw that day? So two things. Uh, one, before I talk about what they saw, I want to talk about one thing. It's not surprising when you think about the concept of aggravating um, departure. That means right now, if Derek Chauvin found guilty, 40 years, we've been saying is the maximum. But there's certain factors that if the prosecutor proves, they can actually go higher than that. Factors like, is the victim particularly vulnerable due to some sort of reduced physicality, i.e. being handcuffed? Is it particularly cruel, i.e. having your knee on someone's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds? Is it a group of three or more who actively participate in the crime? And the fourth one, did it happen in the presence of children? And so not only is it an emotional aspect, but the prosecution is being very strategic in putting these factors forward, I believe, because they've written the motions in the past to try to see if they get a conviction, can they go higher than the maximum that the statute allows, um, as well as what you're talking about, bringing the emotion into it to try to push this closer to a conviction. And do you think uh, the defense, so Derek Chauvin's defense, do you think they've mounted a compelling case so far? And do you have any sense of what their strategy is going to be throughout this trial? So far, no. But I think regardless of what defense are doing, I think Eric Nelson is doing a, is a pretty strong job. At, you you kind of have to dance with the person who, who you came with type of situation. And I say that in terms of the facts of the case. No defense attorney can change the facts of the case. We wish we could, <laughs> uh, but unfortunately we can't. And I think he's doing the best he can with those facts. I think his strongest argument is going to come when the medical examiner comes, and he knows that. Um, but I do think he's making some mistakes by blaming the crowd, blaming the noise around them. That I think he maybe should have held off a little and focused more where he has a stronger argument. Yeah, because I, I think it was yesterday that, or, or it might have been in the opening statements when he was making, he was harping on this case that the crowd was sort of pressuring and scaring police officers and that it was, you know, hindering their job. You think that the the more compelling argument is going to come when they actually look at the, I guess, the toxicology report and, and the medical examiner determining the cause of death? Yeah. And when I say compelling, and I would say, yes, compelling. And when I say compelling, I mean, that is if I was in Eric Nelson's shoes mm. as a defense attorney, I would say, I get it. You all thought that he died because of a knee. I thought so too, when I saw the video, but when you look at the medical examiner report, we find out the truth. I think that would be a much stronger and much more palpable argument than trying to blame everyone left, right, and center. And do we know what's on that, that medical examiner report now? Yes. 
So that's been released. Uh, you can look that up and, and read that. There's actually two. There's the Hennepin County Medical Report, as well as the DOJ. We also know that my, Dr. Michael Bodden, um, husband of Linda Kenny Bodden on the Law and Crime Network, that he also did an evaluation. I think the argument you're going to see comes from the cause of death is it his heart stopped. We all know that. But why did his heart stop? On one side, the prosecution is going to say it's a mechanical, mechanical asphyxiation because of the knee on the neck. The defense is going to say it's a cocktail of drugs and adrenaline in his body. What I'm interested to see, though, and I haven't really seen much of it, is when they argue the manner of death. Manner of death, there's only five. Homicide, accident, natural, suicide, and undetermined. In every one of those medical reports, it's always homicide, which is not the same way we described as lawyers or in court. It simply means death by another. Mm. If either of these medical examiners truly believed that it was the drug that killed him, they would have called it an accident or undetermined. But everyone across the board said homicide. I don't know how the defense is going to get over that hurdle. Huh. And the the you know one thing we've heard from from sort of analysts this week is that it's really up to the prosecution here to prove their case right like you know Derek Chauvin could not even mount a case and could still get off what do they actually have to prove here they've got to prove so there's three charges there's murder in the second degree or unintentional uh, murder murder in the third degree and manslaughter in the first degree for the most part, they don't actually have to prove intent. They don't have to show that Derek, Chau that Derek Chauvin intended to murder uh, George Floyd. They've got to show that he intended to commit a felony, in this case, assault, and that George Floyd so happened to die because of it, right? They don't have to show the proof of murder. They're also going to show negligence or, or recklessness for the manslaughter. And then for the murder three, they have to show a reckless and, uh, sorry, a callous indifference that he committed an act in general that caused the death of someone. So his mindset's not really a thing there. It's more so the outcome and what he was doing. And now I, I hate to make you uh, do any predictions about this, but just having seen the open opening arguments, knowing what the charges are, uh, and having seen the witnesses that we have so far, do you have any idea of which way you think the jury will lean on this case? Right now, based on jury selection, the voir dire questions of how they articulated this case as being broken down, opening statements, where I see both sides really fighting the battlegrounds they're fighting right now and the ones that they are not fighting on, but they mm. could. I actually think this could potentially, even though I don't think it should, I think this should be guilty across the board. I could see this jury coming and saying, we're a little confused on some things. How about we just compromise and we say manslaughter and murder three? Because I don't really see the prosecutor marshalling the jurors through the evidence as best as they can. And what kind of sentence does that carry? That's a great question because I would typically say manslaughter in um, 10 years, murder three, I think it's 15. But with those aggravating departures, they can go a little bit higher than that. And I don't know how the jury is going to really evaluate that when that comes in. So one thing I really wanted to ask you about is what is it like experiencing this trial during the COVID-19 pandemic? Is it that much different from a trial before last year? Oh, absolutely. I've done what? I've done six juries, four um, bench trials, and a bunch of hearings. It is a different animal completely uh, in both the procedures and how things happen. The one main one that I would talk about in terms of jury selection, when you have 50 jurors in a room and you're giving your voir dire, you have the ability, for example, to go say, hey, Jessica, how do you feel about the cops? 
And Jessica can say, I hate the cops. They did this to my brother, yada, yada, yada. Jessica's not making it to the jury, but everyone that heard Jessica speak now knows about this interaction with officers and someone else may make it to the jury. And now she's kind of, we call tainted the jury or poisoned the jury. Lawyers love to do that, whether you're a prosecution or a defense and that didn't happen. So that aspect is gonna be very interesting to see how that plays out. And for the press covering it, is there more, do you, do you have a, are, are you more t t uh, tightly sort of uh, controlled? I imagine you only have like one pool reporter in the courtroom at any one time. Is, is there, uh, there are a lot more restrictions on how the press is covering this trial? A lot more. So there's only two pool reporters. It's, it's like this cool little group that you get to be in if you do go, because uh, many of us are not allowed to go in. So there's two pool reporters at a time. Uh, oftentimes we're switching in and out to maximize that as much as possible, but everyone else is in a large uh, like convention center like room with a large screen in front of them. And for the most part, the media is seeing exactly what the uh, viewers are seeing. And I think for the first time, everyone is on equal footing more or less to see how this trial is working out. Now, my last question, because I know you have to run, but uh, the killing of George Floyd and the video of his death that spread around the world, it sparked protests against police brutality and racial injustice. It's one of the biggest murder cases in recent history. And do the people in the courtroom, from you to the, the witnesses to the jury, do you think they see the trial as bigger than just a trial of Derek Chauvin? Do they see it as a test of the criminal justice system? I think they do, even though they've been told not to. And I think that this case, like many people are thinking, is going to be a test of the criminal justice system. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Brian Buckmeyer on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.